We have to enjoy our food. That's part of that culinary medicine angle to help people find different ways of preparing foods that they've enjoyed that serves them. Not saying you can never have something because the trick is you can have it. You're choosing not to. Welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for raising your health IQ with us coast to coast in the U.S. and in more than 150 countries. Hi to everyone listening in Marietta, Georgia, Winona, Arizona, and Maharashtra, India. Wherever you are, we appreciate you helping to make the world a healthier place. This is episode 90 of season 5, number 389 overall. Coming up today, we have details on a new study showing that almonds, even though they're a little bit higher in fat and calories, may actually help you with your weight loss goals. And speaking of weight loss goals, we have on tap a fascinating conversation about your weight, your health, the concept of one-size-fits-all diets, and why it's important that when it comes to your health, my guest today says your plan needs to be your plan. Dr. Richa Mittal is here with us today. She is board certified in lifestyle medicine and practices evidence-based obesity medicine at Radiant Health in Dallas, which she co-founded to help those in need. She specializes in putting pieces together for patients that most doctors, frankly, aren't able to. She crafts plans that don't just work in the short term. They're not a 30-day solution or a 90-day diet, but they are ideas and practices that you can put into place that can last for the rest of your life. These are the changes that her patients have been searching for. And yeah, a plant-based diet and putting a super hard focus on nutrition seems to be the best medicine here. And for a lot of reasons, Again, not just with the short term, but keeping weight off long term, keeping your health up long term. But before we can get into that, I want to welcome Dr. Neil Barnard back to the exam room. Dr. Barnard, thank you so very much for being here with us on this Giving Tuesday. A very special opportunity I'm excited to talk to the exam roomies about and yourself today is that through the end of today... Any contribution that is made to the Physicians Committee will automatically be doubled. And we need everyone's support right now because if there's anything that I have learned during my time hosting the exam room, it's that it really does take a village to make the world a healthier place. You said it. You know, back when we got started in 1985, there were people thinking about healthier diets, putting their toe in the water. It was not something that doctors knew much about, and there really weren't doctors advocating for it, testing it, uh, doing research studies, the kinds of things that we've been doing during that time. That's what we've been doing, but everything we do is always a partnership or, as you said, Chuck, a village. And to that end, a lot of the research that we do in-house here is nothing short of extraordinary. We're talking about groundbreaking results that have been unearthed by yourself and Dr. Hanna Kaliova and everyone who's a member of the team here at the Physicians Committee who really just put in countless hours in order to publish one single study. 
Well, this is critically important. When I was a kid growing up in North Dakota, my dad was the diabetes expert for Fargo, North Dakota and, and all of Eastern North Dakota. And people would see my dad, but never did anyone, including my father, ever have the expectation that diabetes could get better or go away. The, the whole effort of the medical community at that time was just to slow down the damage, slow down the damage to the eyes or the kidneys. Our research beginning about two decades ago or a little bit more than that, was much more assertive to use the word, uh, the, the right word, I think, that we wanted to see, could we make this disease go away? And that's what we have done by, by really putting more far-reaching diets to a test and to a better test than had been done before. And when NIH funded us starting in 2003, and our first findings from that study were published by the American Diabetes Association, it became clear that the work we were doing here was just groundbreaking and people have supported us since that time and it has really changed the world of medicine. But what's more important is people in their daily lives. They've got maybe diabetes or they're concerned about cancer in their family or Alzheimer's or weight they just haven't been able to lose. And our research that addresses those, yes, it changes the practice of medicine, but it changes people's lives. And that's really what we're talking about. And look, it's not just the research. It's, as you said, what's being put into practice by that research. And what's being put into practice is being put into practice by doctors too. It's not just the exam roomies who thankfully are listening to us right now. One of the coolest inventions I've seen is what we actually put out there for clinicians called the Clinician's Guide, where we've condensed all of the research that we have done and the research that we talk about on the show, the very research that has proven time and again to show that we do not have to be so overburdened by disease and that there is a better way to treat and prevent it in a lot of cases. And so what this one app does is it puts the power of all of that information right into the hands of doctors who are working with the exam roomies who are listening to us right now. It started out as a book and then it became a bigger book and a bigger book and now it's a continuously updated app. And medical students use it, and for many, it has revolutionized their, the beginning of their practice. Because whether they're looking at something like Alzheimer's disease or varicose veins, where you wouldn't know that there's a role for diet, they can look it up. It's at their fingertips. They are suddenly the smartest kid in class, um, and they're going to be a darn good doctor in the future. That's what, uh, that's what this app has been allowing them to do. I'm looking through the guide right now, and it really does have just about everything you could hope for in there. We've got heart disease and cancer, hypertension, diabetes, migraines, just dozens and dozens and dozens of illnesses that are so sadly and unfortunately common around the world. And so to be able to take all of this research about healthy foods and healthy eating and healthy lifestyles that can put an end to so much of this suffering and prevent and reverse a lot of these conditions and do it in a more sustainable method to be able to put all of that power right into the doctor's hands so that they then can take it right into the literal exam room. I mean, that is so powerful. But it's more than that, too, because we are so busy here also helping to put our findings and our knowledge into practice by working with hospitals to eliminate unhealthy foods that are on their menus. You know, the same foods 
that may have contributed to a heart attack are then being served to someone who just had one. What sense does that make? So we're helping to connect the dots for hospitals, and we also have a dedicated team that is working endlessly to put a stop to unnecessary animal testing in labs and showing researchers more human-relevant methods. And of course, when we're talking about all of the good that contributions can do for us here at the Physicians Committee, we also have to talk about the exam room as well, because this show, Dr. Barnard, humbly, I will say, has reached millions of people around the world and has become such a powerful vehicle for change. We're talking about improving the health and lives for so many people who had given up hope. And that's why I will say humbly that this show is more important now than ever. Well, when people have supported the exam room and the exam room live, I have to say it just makes my heart sing because you, Chuck, have taken the work that we do, the work that our whole medical team does, whether it's uh, doctors who are on as guests or our doctors here who are doing the research and they bring it to the program, you get that word out in the U.S., all around the world, in dozens and dozens and dozens of countries where people are listening to you, and they are putting that to work. In some cases, they are educating their doctors. In some cases, they are doctors taking this information and bringing it to their patients. And it's, it's no surprise to me that the exam room has become the number one podcast in so many countries. And what really brought this home to me was, and, and you'll remember this um, at our uh, International Conference on Nutrition and Medicine, a doctor who, whose life was transformed by you and the information that you gave him while he was in Africa, in, in his country, in Ghana. And it changed his life. It helped him to regain his health. He got on a plane. He came all the way to Washington, D.C. to say, number one, thank you to you. And number one, and number two, to sit in on the conference so that he could know the latest and take that home again. So saving lives is what it's all about. It's wonderful to see how the exam room is doing exactly that. That was honestly one of the most moving experiences of my entire life. For that gentleman to board a plane for an entire day and travel halfway around the world just to come see us, say thank you, raise his health IQ, but then take everything that he's learned back to his own community so that he then can improve the lives of others living around him. That is what the show is all about. And that is why we need the exam roomies help more than ever. We need your help to keep saving those lives. That's why I am thrilled to announce that your contributions will be doubled through the end of Giving Tuesday. That's November 29th, the day that this show was released. Through the end of November 29th, your generous contributions will be doubled. So $5 becomes $10. $10 automatically becomes $20. $50 automatically becomes $100. And every single one of those dollars really does help to make the world a healthier place. They can go directly to help save the lives of someone like Dr. Daniel Ganu, who flew all the way from Africa to join us for the conference in Washington, D.C. I hope people will be as generous as they possibly can be because we, let's face it, the world has been in trouble in so many ways. For people who have a heart for animals to learn that Americans eat a million every 
hour. That's troubling to see what's happening to the environment degraded by uh, environmental change, uh, by the, the climate change that we're seeing largely as a result of food choices, and not to mention the human tragedy that we see from conditions that could improve if people's diets could get back uh, on track. These are the things that we need to address. And when people are as generous as they possibly can be, that allows us to do more research studies, to bring those findings to medical schools and hospitals and to medical students all the way around the world, to launch new programs. And as you know, we're doing new programs now in English, French, Spanish, Mandarin, a whole new program for the Indian subcontinent. All of these things are expanding enormously, but they can only expand and they can only reach people. They can only save lives to the extent that we have the resources to do that. Again, through the end of Giving Tuesday, your contributions will be doubled automatically, meaning your dollars will go twice as far. $5 becomes 10, 10 becomes 20, 50 becomes 100. Every dollar you can spare, we would appreciate because again, it does take a village to make the world a healthier place. And you, my friend, are a very big part of that village. And Dr. Barnard, I want to say thank you to you once again for being here. Greatly appreciate your time. Thank you, Chuck. And thanks to all of you for joining us on the team. PCRM.org slash ER is the website to visit to make your donation. PCRM.org slash ER, or just click the link right now in the episode notes. So please give what you can to help us make the world a healthier place. Still to come on the show today, a study on almonds showing that people who eat them actually tend to eat fewer calories overall. Very interesting research out of Australia. So details on that coming up. Nut lovers are really going to appreciate this one. But right now, let's get back to the main theme of the show. Get ready for our special guest today, Dr. Richa Mittal. And I found what she had to say quite interesting. Tapped into the old me for most of our conversation. Also had a lot of questions from exam roomies wondering about cheat days and what are some healthy options there. And that kind of led to a broader discussion about cheat days in general. Plus, we're going to get into vegan cheeses and long-term risks when your diet is short on carbs. We're going to be weighing quick gains against health setbacks over time and a lot more right now with Dr. Mittal on the exam room. Dr. Mittal, thank you so very much for making the time. It is great to have you here on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to it. When you talk about putting those pieces together for patients and really taking that larger kind of holistic look at things, what is it initially that drew you to going that route as opposed to what I would call traditional obesity treatments? Well, what really took me there was my whole journey in medicine. I started off working in the hospital setting, seeing people who were coming in with illnesses, and I quickly realized that you know they were all kind of a conglomeration of things that came together because of years of chronic disease. And I felt like there was a void in the medical system where we were seeing patients, we were doing our best, working so hard, but we weren't able to make the impact that we wanted to be able to make 
because we didn't have time to address all the other factors that really day to day affect people's lives, whether it's their choices in terms of their food, whether it's movement, whether it's stress, sleep. You know, there's so many factors that come into play when, when we talk about health and health habits. And um, I wanted to be able to make an impact in a, in a different way, maybe outside of that traditional model. Do you think that we're kind of set up to fail in terms of our weight, our overall health right now, the way that the majority of us are living our lives in this country? I mean, you just look at the statistics, right? More than 40% of of us uh, have obesity. You got three quarters of us who are at least overweight. Um, And when people are like, well, I don't know why this is happening. A lot of them do feel like they have been set up to fail. Would you agree with that assessment? Well, the optimistic part of me hopes not, (laughs) but there are definitely a lot of things that work against us, whether it's just, you know, stresses of modern day living, the need for convenience, busy schedules. Um, On the individual level, we've gotten away from cooking and uh, preparing and being more connected with our food. Um, I think as a medical system and a healthcare system and even a reimbursement system, you know, insurance companies don't really cover a lot of the uh, time that is needed to be able to focus on prevention. Um, I think, you know, social media and that instant need for uh, instant gratification and quick answers really isn't the answer. Uh, I'm hoping that through the work that you and I do and other people do, that we're hopefully spreading awareness about the importance of really the whole approach and that, you know, all of it matters. And you're right, in, in a way, there, the, the, the system definitely works against us, but I'm hoping that we're not completely set up for failure. I, I don't want to speak in totality here. I didn't mean that all of us 1000% are set up uh, for failure. Um, because I mean, you look at a lot of the success stories. Um, and 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 you see so many of them. I mean, clearly, you know, there is a way to achieve success when it comes to your health. Um, so let's let's keep with that, that rosier picture. Um, for those who are frustrated, though, when it comes to losing weight and keeping it on, you know, hold up, let me, let me, let me tell you this. All right. When I was still overweight, I mean, I'm sure you hear this from patients all the time. You go down the scale, you go up the scale, you go down the scale, you go up the scale. And what I realized in one particular instance was that, you know, I'm the kind of guy that can't handle having, you know, one nacho or go to the drive-thru just one day without having another nacho or going to the drive-thru the next day. Again, you know, you kind of get hooked on these foods and we're starting to see more and more and more research into this and more evidence coming out um, that say, hey, yeah, you know, you can become as addicted to food as as you can any other substance. As a matter of fact, there was a study that just came out where the researchers, I believe led by uh, someone at the University of Michigan, concluded that uh, these ultra processed foods that are so prevalent right now in the standard American diet meet the same criteria that was set forth by the Surgeon General for tobacco. Do you, when you talk to your patients, what is something that you know you glean from them in terms of how much of a hook these ultra processed foods have in them? 
Yeah, no, I think that they absolutely do. And perhaps is experienced differently for different people, which they do mention in the paper, because I think it's important to recognize that, um, you know, addiction can be partially due to the substance and partially due to perhaps the susceptibility of particular individuals to be uh, more susceptible to that uh, feeling that uh, craving that the dopamine high, the urges, and to your point about not being able to just eat one. Although I think we all know that certain characteristics of those types of ultra processed foods are there, you know, the tagline for, for, I think it's Lay's potato chips. I bet you can't just have one, you know, they've been developed that way, right? Because we're, we're supposed to want more and they sell more chips. So definitely ultra processed foods and addiction can play a role. Um, I also think that it's important to realize that when we put a morality behind a food though. So, you know, people are, a lot of people are on diets, right? And I work with people who have been on so many type of diets and the all or nothing or the, I can never eat X, Y, and Z again, whether it's chips or cookies or whatever, what have you, that mentality also leads to kind of a, a, a backfiring on that approach where you have to, slowly perhaps be able to enjoy some indulgent food, whatever that, that you're classifying as an indulgent food, in a way that's sustainable, because again, we eat for a lot of different reasons. We eat for social reasons, for nourishment, for enjoyment, for um, you know cultural reasons. And maybe some of those foods can be enjoyed in a small portion, but Yes, there are absolutely people who are 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 able or, or are not able to stop eating certain foods, and they are developed that way. Yes, and 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 that's where it gets tricky. You know, my message is that there is not a one size fits all solution for anybody. Um, that said, I'm also very much uh, based off of my own history and uh, you know likelihood of of becoming addicted to whatever. Um, you know, I just choose abstinence when it comes to, you know, ultra processed, high fat foods certainly have not had any sort of fast food now in, in 13 years. Um, but you hit on something though, when people come to you and I remember distinctly, you know, before I, I had bariatric surgery, I remember, you know, having to go to these groups where people, the number one question that they had was when will I be able to eat insert their favorite food here again. And it terrified them to not be able to have that relationship with that food that they have been enjoying their entire life ever, ever, ever again. And so it took me a while in this journey to kind of reach the point that, well, maybe when I'm talking to people, it should not necessarily be, it's not that you can never eat that food again. It's just that your relationship with it has to change. Case in point, if I wanted to eat French fries, I'm not going to go to the drive-thru and get French fries. What I'm going to do is I'm going to go to the kitchen. I'm going to get a potato. I'm going to chop it up. And then I'm going to throw that in the air fryer so I can control, you know, all of the stuff that I don't want uh, with those French fries, right? I just get nice crispy potatoes at that point. If you present it that way to your patient, that it's not a breakup, but the relationship with the food has to change. Do you think that that's more palatable to them and it takes away a lot of that fear and anxiety? Absolutely. And I think the key is find other things that you like. We have to enjoy our food. 
And um, if you find other things and other ways, and that's part of that culinary medicine angle to um, help people find different ways of preparing foods that they've enjoyed that serves them. But hey, not saying you can never have something because the trick is you can have it. You're choosing not to. Yeah. And it's a hard choice. You know, I mean, the daggone this thing is like, here we are, I mean, more than a decade into it, Doc, and I'm still getting cravings for, I mean, Taco Bell was always, you know, my number one addiction. And and to this day, if I'm watching a game and Taco Bell's got some sort of new crazy concoction out, I'm just like, ooh, that sounds pretty good right about now. And then it's just like, what are you thinking? Like, come on, man, get yourself together. It's weird how our brains are wired like that. Um, when you're, I mean, when you're coaching your patients to deal with those types of cravings, you know, so that they don't necessarily give in to them and they don't go on a fast food binge, right? What's some of the advice that that you give them, you know, short of go crazy, but make sure you don't do it tomorrow? Yeah, I think I, number one, you can if you want, but let's pause <laughs> and consider. Uh, delay, don't deny. So again, it's about being mindful. Is this, this is a thought. It doesn't mean I have to act on it. It doesn't mean I have to vilify myself for having the thought. It's a thought. Um, making sure to not go long periods of time without eating to where actual hunger is also exacerbating the cravings. Um, working on stress management is huge because a lot of times the urge and the cravings for highly palatable or ultra processed foods comes during time of high stress. And I help my patients identify what those stressful triggers are and find other ways to speak to yourself. So I call it their love language to themselves. And food is an easy love language to yourself. It's readily available. It's quick. We can move on and continue to do other stuff. But actually pausing and thinking about what is it that you're actually feeding? Is it a need for something else? Work on that. Um, and then sleep is the last one. When people stay up at night, uh, we have a lot of different reasons why we might do that. Um, again, your, your guard is down. You're more vulnerable. And uh, you know, making sure you're getting adequate sleep um, is also important in that. But I think delaying, not denying, and that self-conversation is really important. You work with your patients on identifying those triggers. You are the first weight management doctor whom I've spoken with who has said that. Like that is absolutely critical. And as somebody who was in those trenches, like my hat is off to you majorly. Uh, just that is mind-blowingly important. So thank you so much for that. Yeah. Well, that, that kind of makes me sad that no one's all, no, no one else has mentioned that. <laughs> I mean, but you know, I, I think that for a lot of us, you know, it's still viewed as, you know, food is a choice, right? And it's just, well, it's as simple as, well, eat this, don't eat that. And, you know, for me, the relationship is way more complicated than a simple, yes, I'll eat this or no, I won't. You know, there are so many factors that go into it. Um, and, and I remember like at, at one point initially after I had lost not all of my weight, but I think I'm, I'm like five, five and I had gotten down to like 170, maybe 175 pounds at this point. And my doctor turns to me and he's like, you've done a really good job but you need 
to eat a hamburger. Like the dude straight up prescribed a hamburger for me. Now, I didn't know a whole lot about what it is you and I were talking about in terms of the science of food addiction, ultra processed foods, none of that. But what I did know was that there was a lot of just, I mean, that's just bad advice. I love my doctor, but there that was just like really, really, really bum advice. Um, do you see like that there's a, a big time need in terms of medicine for your colleagues, your fellow doctors to be kind of coached up in the way that you were? Absolutely. Um, and that uh, a lot of us obesity medicine and lifestyle medicine doctors are on that side of things too. You know, um, I'm part of the Dallas Obesity Society. We, we put on programs for other healthcare providers to become educated because this is all stuff that I learned later. Um, we don't learn it in medical school. I'm, I'm hoping that there's more emphasis now on this because it's a huge crisis in our country and in the world. And uh, doctors and other healthcare providers absolutely are the uh, culprit for part of it. And also we're on the front line. So, you know, when people come in for other stuff, of course, you know, there's weight stigma and we need to be very well versed in being able to bring up the conversation in the appropriate manner and uh, with respect and non-judgment. But yes, there's a huge need for more education around obesity and around nutrition and even behavior change uh, that is lacking, sadly. You know, that, that, that brings me to like an interesting point here. You know, we are living in a society where people are, um, and I guess rightfully so, very much aware of the stigma that exists surrounding weight. And we are trying desperately as a society to shed that stigma um, to the point where I think that obesity is becoming, and this is just my opinion. I got a caveat being, I'm not speaking on behalf of the physicians committee here, um, but I, I think that to a certain extent, we are even normalizing obesity further because we don't want to hurt anybody's feelings or make anybody feel bad. And, and that is not my intent. Nobody should be made to feel bad. Nobody is less than another. That's not what I'm saying. But I think that with, with some of this movement, we are trying to pull the wool over our eyes a little bit. Um, how do you kind of combat that and tread you know, so delicately to have those conversations so as not to hurt somebody's feelings, but at the same time, you got to at least acknowledge the truth here. Yeah, that's a great question and something that I have really considered a lot. So this health at every size type of movement where we're saying, you know, there can be health at every size. That is true, but there's not health at every size all the time. And that can be true whether somebody has obesity. And that can also be true if they're a quote unquote normal weight, because weight and health. Well, I guess we could say health is not defined just by weight, but it is a factor. And we can't uh, not acknowledge the socioeconomic factors that play a role. And that is part of that health at every size uh, mentality and philosophy to say not all of these things are uh, in our control and there are social determinants that are absolutely at play. 
there are individual choices, and then there are also medical issues. And obesity is classified as a chronic medical disease, but it's not always a disease. And there are normal, pe normal weight people who are not practicing health habits that actually have increase in their body uh, fat, uh, increased adiposity, uh, who may not be classified as having obesity, who are not healthy. So we have to be more careful about how we define health. And in terms of uh, getting away from the stigma, I think, like you said, everybody deserves to be treated with dignity, respect, and non-judgment. And we should bring up the conversations in a very thoughtful manner. You, I have patients who've lost a lot of weight, who may still have a BMI over 30, who actually have imp significant improvements in their body composition and in their health habits. And they have a doctor who they go to see, they get classified, pinged as obesity because of their BMI, and then they get told, you probably need to lose some weight. No, they don't actually, if you dig a little deeper. So we have to be more careful about how we have these conversations and it needs to be very personalized. In terms of, you know, when we first started this discussion, talking about food addiction, the pathways in the brain that trigger eating are very complex and are affected by many different things, including addiction type of mentality when it comes to food or feeling of addiction. There's also, of course, behaviors, automated behaviors, stress, um, emotional issues, um, anxiety and depression that people may be self-medicating with food. Um, and then, of course, you know, uh, there are medical conditions that can cause weight gain, too, which are important to screen for things like hypothyroidism. Uh, when people start to have weight gain, oftentimes they might be on the path to developing type 2 diabetes. Um, that's important to recognize. And then as far as the medications are concerned, in the studies looked at, looking at uh, drug approval, usually about a 10 to 15% reduction in body weight is what's seen in the studies. Of course, there's people that fall outside of that. With lifestyle changes alone, um, even though those lifestyle changes are so important in terms of their health impact, oftentimes for weight management, studies show maybe about a 5 to 7% reduction. So, oh, okay. So that's, that's interesting. Um, I'll tell you what, what, I think about, and I put myself back in my old 420 pound frame. And I think that had a doctor come to me and said, well, Hey Chuck, I'm going to write you a prescription for this and it might help. The, the way that I would have interpreted that is basically, okay, well, this is my solution to be able to keep eating and living my life the way that I have been living it. Right. And case in point, I was put on blood pressure medication when I was a freshman in high school. And I was, I use that to justify continuing to eat the way that I was eating. You know, matter of fact, right after I got that prescription, I went to the drive-thru on my way home, you know, and, and, you know, there, there is a concern <laughs> that, and I'm sure I'm not the only person in the world that, that would feel that way. And that kind of goes back to the person having to be ready to change in order to make those changes. I mean, is that something that is a doctor that has ever kind of entered your mind? Like the patient might be thinking, Hey, I got my solution. I'm going to keep going this way. Well, I think part of that is the education, right? I 
talk to them about why it's so important. Um, it's not just about weight loss. It's about improving your health. And if you're looking at your health habits and all the different parameters, whether it's your cholesterol, blood pressure, um, diabetes risk, uh, sleep apnea, joint pain, you know, a lot of those things will start to improve with weight loss, but it won't be the end all be all unless you also make the lifestyle change. And uh, I think that when people, you know, it's kind of both ways, right? Because you want people to make a change and see that it has an impact. But oftentimes with lifestyle changes alone, maybe they're not going to reach that goal just on their own, in which case they can become discouraged. So I think it's important to recognize and educate about the role that each component plays and making a, a choice together in a, in, a, in a partnership. We should not discount the effect that lifestyle choices and nutrition choices can make on our health. And yeah, I, I, I wasn't trying to ch challenge your judgment at oh, all. I, was, no, I know. <laughs> I, was, I was literally just thinking like, well, what, what would I have done in that case? And honestly, you know, I thought the same thing about the surgery, you know, going into it. Like I thought that like this was just going to buy me some time. I put the weight back on because virtually everyone who I know who has had that procedure wound up putting, uh, you know, 80, 90% of the weight back on some people are even a little bit heavier than when they initially started out. Um, and I thought that that too would be my, my fate, but you know, that surgery in conjunction with the lifestyle changes, um, is kind of what brought me to today's point. And, and in all honesty, you know, I firmly believe that it uh, was the surgery that got me started. But, you know, I'm long term success. I'm going to credit maybe five, 10 percent tops to that. And the rest of it is lifestyle changes to make this a sustainable lifestyle moving forward to make sure that I don't have to worry about that weight coming back on. I mean, do you think that that's that's a pretty accurate assessment? Absolutely. Yes. And I think that you know, I think the problem is because when you make a lifestyle change, it's hard. When people are going through that process, if they're struggling, they can give up, right? Versus if they start to see change and they have support. And when you're talking about addiction, when you're talking about long-term patterns of coping, when we're talking about everybody experiences hunger in different ways. It's not fair for me to say to someone, well, you need to just eat less. And yes, absolutely. Um, changing the way you eat and eating with a focus of abundance of lots and lots of plant-based you know, vegetables on your plate and uh, cutting down on the fat and thinking about eating more fiber, all of these things are so important when it comes to the sustainability because people who are on a diet, quote unquote, it's really hard mentally and physically and they're hungry. And I think that that's where surgery, lifestyle changes, medication, they don't need to be mutually exclusive, but you're right. The foundation of it is the lifestyle. Absolutely. Um, absolutely. No question about it. And I know that there are a number of people who are, are going to be watching this and they're going to say, well, you know, uh, you took the easy way out. You got prescribed a med. You had surgery. I'm telling you from the patient perspective, there's not a single thing that was easy about it. Um, 
And, and from a doctor perspective, I'm sure that you, you agree, because there's still a heck of a lot of hard work that has to go into it, no doubt about it. Um, I want to open it up and take some questions uh, from the viewers here in, in just a minute. But um, you use the term diet, quote unquote. Um, in your experience, how does a plant-based or plant-forward diet compare to uh, others that are pretty popular, other fad diets that are out there in terms of long-term success? Yeah, so I think it's great because there's a focus on the abundance of things on your plate, which mentally makes a big difference. And again, when you're trying to create a calorie deficit, how you get there matters. So focusing on what to add to your plate is very empowering and positive. Uh, I think that also just, you know, being mindful again about uh, where your food comes from is really important. And knowing that you're adding an abundance of fiber versus, you know, when people do like a keto type of diet, um, you don't really get to eat very much. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> food that's very, you know, fat heavy is going to be calorie dense. Um, and mentally speaking, you don't really get to have much food. Um, on the other hand, they do say that they feel less hungry when they go into the nutritional ketosis, which could have some value. But guess what? When you eat a lot of fiber, you're also very full. So I think the plant-based diet is uh, really great because it helps to fight hunger and you get to focus on what to add to your plate. All right. Time to open it up uh, for questions here. Open up the doctor's mailbag. This one set in from Micah here. Are there any long-term risks to avoiding carbs? You were just talking about the keto diet there. Yeah. So the biggest long-term risk is that you're avoiding, well, number one, the sustainability of avoiding a whole macronutrient is very difficult. But number two, in terms of risks, you're cutting out fiber, which is very beneficial in terms of our metabolic health. So reducing our risk of diabetes, cardiovascular disease, blood pressure issues, our gut health, our colon cancer risk. Uh, so there's a lot of you know, uh, non-benefit in terms of completely eliminating uh, fiber. So it shouldn't really be about avoiding all carbs. It should be about which carbohydrates are you choosing. This is a really interesting question from Sherry. Everybody's looking for that one solution, right? Sherry is wondering whether there is truly a one-size-fits-all diet that can work for everybody. I would say there's not one size fits all, but there's a one size fits all approach that works for everyone, which is do something that's sustainable. And uh, whatever you're going to do, don't call it a diet, make it a lifestyle change. Because when people have looked at different types of, say, dietary plans, and how much people lose weight, the number one determinant of being able to sustain the weight loss is being able to sustain the, the dietary style, lifestyle. So uh, no, there is not one size fits all, but definitely make sustainable changes. Yeah. Talk about sustainability. I always think of that stat that gets thrown around. It's something like more than 90%, 95% of diets end in failure. I, I'm sure you're familiar with that. Is that, is that even an accurate statistic? <laughs> <laughs> Hard to say, but I think um, in our society, everyone seems to be on a diet at some point, <laughs> um, you know, and I think that's, again, it's a, it's that temporary mentality. It's the, okay, I, I need to be on a detox. Like, no, you don't. You actually just need to change your lifestyle. Do you think that somebody is kind of running a risk 
when they say, well, look, you know, I'm, I'm going to go on a diet here. I'm going to lose 20 pounds. And as a reward, you know, once I lose those 20 pounds, uh, I'm going to eat an entire pizza or an entire chocolate cake. Um, do you think that that's kind of like the wrong mindset to have as you're trying to get healthy? Absolutely. I think that all or nothing is not good. First of all, yo-yo weight loss and weight regain is not good for our health, physically and mentally. But also, um, the all or nothing mindset is what leads to this pattern of losing and regaining. And I wanted to just quickly mention, because we haven't talked about this, um, binge eating. Uh, I see a lot of people with binge eating. Uh, and I think that it's important to recognize that binge eating disorder is the most common eating disorder in our country. And it's not like, oh, you know, the way people use the term like, oh, I binged on chocolate chips, uh, chocolate chip cookies last night. It's like they have a compulsion to eat. And it's driven by, of course, uh, you know, history of trauma and different types of coping and should be addressed by a therapist in treatment. But um, also exacerbated by the all or nothing and this, these food rules of like completely de complete deprivation and then complete indulgence. <laughs> uh, binge eating. I mean, that is a legit thing. 10,000 calories every single day without fail. And, uh, you know, if, if my day did not end with a trip to the drive-thru, it was not a good day. Like you did not want to be around me. It was, it was a nasty, nasty compulsion. And my heart goes out to anybody who struggles with that. Um, John here. Okay. This is one that universally everybody is going to love to get the answer to. Uh, what are your best foods that you recommend to eat that will help maintain weight loss? So I kind of alluded to that a moment ago, but eating an abundance of vegetables. And um, I like to use the Harvard Healthy Plate as kind of a model that people can visualize because it's a plate. Half the plate is vegetables and fruits. You incorporate whole grains that have fiber, um, choosing proteins that have fiber as well. Whether you um, include animal proteins or not is, you know, kind of your decision. But making sure that you have fiber and lots and lots of abundance of vegetables on your plate and fruit, which are nutritionally dense but are not calorically dense, um, can really help with long-term weight maintenance. Um, also, I, even though it's not really a food, but I would say that uh, Checking in with late night eating is also a great strategy. It's not to say that calories in the evening are any more than calories during the day, but the things that people choose to eat at night, especially while they're sitting in front of the television and that kind of mindless eating can definitely be something that uh, can be useful to cut out and to help with maintaining weight loss. Oh yeah, man. The late night munchies. That's a, that's a very real thing. The late night munchies. That is, that is very real. Uh, Gene is wondering, um, quick yes or no. Would you say that fiber is perhaps the most important nutrient when it comes to weight loss? I would say fiber, yes, is very important. Uh, protein is too. When you're in a calorie deficit, um, eating enough adequate protein. Again, we don't need to be overloading ourselves with protein, um, especially if you are incorporating some uh, resistance training into your lifestyle, which I hope you are if you're in a calorie deficit. That can um, also help you to maintain your muscle mass. But fiber is very under eaten in our society. 
under eat. I like the way that you put that. It is under eaten and it's <laughs> under appreciated. I mean, just just ask our buddy Will. Um, all right, uh, let's grab a couple of more quick ones. Uh, you've been very generous with your time here. Uh, here we go. Uh, Colin wants to know: Are there any vegan cheeses that you would consider to actually be healthy? <laughs> are we talking about healthy or tasty? You know, it depends. <laughs> uh, I personally just don't really care for any of the vegan cheeses that I've tried that are ready made. Uh, as far as health, you know, you kind of want to look at what they're using as the base ingredient. Um, if coconut milk is involved, that is a source of saturated fat. So we want to be uh, limiting that in our diet. And I actually personally love cashew cheese and I make it on my own, but it ends up being more like a ricotta type of consistency. And that is going to be a source of healthy fat. Uh, so that that may be helpful. <laughs> Uh, final, final question here, uh, comes to us from, let's see, I want a fun one. I want a very fun one to end. With. Ah, here we go. Jill, Jill gets the honor of having the last question of the day. What are some healthy options if you're going to have a cheat day? So I have a caveat, just like I don't like the word diet. I don't like the word cheat day, um, or even cheat meal. Um, I call it mindful indulgence. I think it's important to, again, take away the judgment. Uh, but if you are planning to have something more indulgent, it's really up to you. If you want to have a little bit of the real thing, go for it. Um, consider uh, enjoying it and having a small portion and moving on. Uh, but some of the kind of more indulgent things that uh, I have found helpful for my patients who have sweet tooths, say, is uh, using fruit as your sweetener, whether you're doing chia seed pudding, whether you're uh, maybe baking up a little uh, peach cobbler, like an apple cobbler type of dessert for yourself. Uh, you don't really have to add a whole lot of fats into that. Um, you know, one of my favorite recipes that I make with my nine-year-old daughter is we'll bake um, apples and we'll put cinnamon on them um, and typically just sprinkle a little bit of granola or oats on top with a little bit of coconut oil and uh, we'll uh, enjoy that as a dessert. But I just want you to be cognizant of when you call something a cheat, it means you're being bad versus maybe just being mindful and indulging mindfully. Is it all in the verbiage? Is, is, it, is, it, is it the words that we, we got to choose to make the difference? I, I think so, because yeah. it, it, there's a there, there's a judgment in no in no way is cheating ever good. <laughs> <laughs> OK, touche, Doc, touche. Uh, OK, here's the deal. Uh, if you are lucky enough to live in the Dallas area, and I know that there are a lot of exam roomies who do, uh, they can work with you at uh, Radiant Health. RadiantHealthDallas.com is the website to go to. Uh, talk to me really quickly uh, about what the patient experience is like when they come to see you. Yeah, so I actually see patients all throughout uh, the state of Texas. So we have a lot of patients that we just see over telemedicine throughout Texas. And um, if you are over telemedicine versus in person, the only difference is that in our office, we do body composition analysis to better understand uh, what your body fat percentage looks like, how much muscle mass you have, so that you're able to kind of go beyond just the full full, uh, full weight, if you will. Um, for my patients, it's very personalized. We have longer visits. Uh, we call our first two visits foundation visits where I spend 75 to 90 minutes talking about all these different areas that we talked about today. But in, in particular, what does your 
nutrition and lifestyle pattern currently look like? What are your habits? What are your triggers for eating? Uh, what does your family life look like? What, uh, what is your sleep, your stress levels, your exercise, all of that. And then we uh, customize a program for you. And I see people monthly as part of their membership when they belong to me as a patient. And we do weekly health coaching. I reach out to everyone virtually to check in and see how they're doing on their personalized goals. And once people uh, are through their monthly program, we eventually go into maintenance where I see them every three to six months. And basically the idea is to partner with you as your doctor, as your health coach. I keep people's primary care physicians in the loop and to really help you with that sustainable, lasting weight loss. Yeah. You know, at the top, we were talking about putting all of those pieces together for a comprehensive plan. Certainly, uh, you're doing that. Your patients are lucky to have you. And uh, yeah, outside of Dallas, all throughout the state of Texas, we got a, a pretty big audience. So hopefully there are some people who, you know, well, I don't want to say hopefully here, but if if somebody is hearing this, they're feeling disillusioned, like they're kind of at their wits end. Uh, that approach, take it from my experience, is the one that you're going to want to look at. So uh, radianthealthdallas.com is the website to go to. If you're outside of Texas, no problem there. Uh, richamithel.com uh, is the website there. Subscribe to the newsletter, stay in touch. And we have links to both right now in the show description. Um, Doc, thank you so much for being here. This has just been an absolute treat. There's so much that I still want to get to with you, um, but we're out of time today. So what I would love to do is to be able to extend an invitation for you to come back at some point on the show. I would love to do that. I feel like we have so much we could discuss. And thank you so much for having me on. I really enjoyed our conversation. Very interesting conversation today. You know, it's always good to dip back into the old mindset just as a reminder of how far you may have come. You never want to go back there, but you also never want to forget. And I think that just from a transformative standpoint, it's that remembering that makes you appreciate everything you have once you've regained your health, not just in terms of losing weight, but everything. How freeing it is to not have that burden of sickness hanging over you like a dark cloud every single day. And now every day is like a celebration. And if you never lose touch with that old you, you'll always appreciate the new you that much more. And it should even motivate you to just keep going in this healthier direction. At least that's how it's been for me and a lot of the amazing people who we've talked to over the years here on the show, people who have had these incredible transformations of their own. So RadiantHealthDallas.com is Dr. Mittel's website if you would like to visit with her. But if you are not in the Dallas area, but you could still use a little bit of help, well, a virtual visit to the Barnard Medical Center might be an option. The Barnard Medical Center is powering this episode of the Exam Room Podcast. Their doctors and dietitians practice lifestyle medicine and promote plant-based nutrition with in-person visits in their Washington, D.C. office and telemedicine appointments in 18 states. Visit barnardmedical.org or call 202-527-7500 to learn more. 
That's barnardmedical.org or call 202-527-7500. Now, when it comes to foods for weight loss, you probably wouldn't think about nuts. You wouldn't say almonds would make the cut here, but a new study is showing they could actually be a cut above. For details on this study that a lot of nut lovers are going to get really excited about, let's head to the exam room news desk. Weight loss can be a tough nut to crack, but researchers in Australia are showing that a handful of almonds just might help. The study finds people who ate 30 to 50 grams of almonds per day tended to eat about 70 fewer calories. It might be easier to measure that as just a handful or so. Researchers say the almond eaters in the study experienced changes in their appetite-regulating hormones that kept them feeling full. Specifically, the almond group had a 47% lower C-peptide response, which can improve insulin sensitivity while also lowering the risk of diabetes and cardiovascular disease. Participants also showed a nearly 40% higher level of glucagon, which signals the brain that you're full. Researchers believe that the high amount of fiber and protein found in almonds, along with unsaturated fatty acids, may also explain why fewer calories were being consumed throughout the day. Lead researcher Dr. Sharia Carter says this is another sign that small steps can make a big difference when it comes to your health, saying, quote, When we're making small, sustainable changes, we're more likely to be improving our overall health in the long run. And there is a link to the study right now in the episode notes. A footnote, by the way, researchers say that the majority of calories that were being shaved by people who ate the almonds were from junk food. So that right there is another big plus. And naysayers may say, well, look, 70 calories is no big deal. And if you look at it as a one-time thing, that's absolutely right. 70 calories, not a big deal. But if this becomes routine and you're talking about 70 calories per day, seven days a week, that's 490 calories every single week. That's about a fourth of an entire day's worth. And then over the course of a year, it adds up to more than 25,000 calories or almost two full weeks worth of calories based on a 2000 calorie a day diet. Not too shabby, right? And that's important because the World Health Organization estimates that 1.9 billion adults worldwide are overweight and 650 million are obese. And a little change like this can really help tip the scales back in the favor of health. But man, if you've ever eaten almonds with a banana, that is truly great, my friend. That is an amazing combo that drives my taste buds wild. And if you have the opportunity to try that, I highly recommend it. It is one of the greatest combos ever created on God's green earth. And don't forget, please give what you can for this Giving Tuesday. Until the end of the day, on November 29th, your donations will be doubled. We need your help to change lives, to save lives, and to make the world a healthier 
place. PCRM.org slash E-R. That's PCRM.org slash E-R is the website to visit right now to make your contributions or just click the link in the episode notes. And for today, that is going to wrap things up. I would like to say thank you once again to Dr. Richa Mittal for being here and helping to raise our health IQs. And for everyone at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening. And remember, as always, keep it plant-based.